The Guardian. Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on The Guardian, sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Hello and welcome to The Guardian's Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. I'm Sandy War, and today we'll be discussing the weekend's exciting quarter-final matches, which saw a clean sweep for the Southern Hemisphere, despite a heroic performance by Scotland in their dramatic match with Australia. We'll also be looking ahead to the semi-finals. Joining me today is comedian and broadcaster Andy Zaltzman. From The Guardian, we have Dan Lucas. Plus, we welcome back Owen Evans, editor of Sports Business International. Well, we've all been missing the constant rugby on TV and the wonderful performances by the Tier 2 nations, but even by this World Cup's high standards, the weekend matches have been exciting, to put it mildly. For the first time ever, there'll be no European side in a World Cup semi-final, so lots and lots to mull over. Let's start, though, by looking at that pulsating match at Twickenham. Yesterday, where Australia beat Scotland 35-34. Mark Bennett's try for the Scots with seven minutes to go looked to have sealed one of the great World Cup upsets. But referee Craig Joubert called a deliberate offside when the replays would seem to indicate the ball had come off a Wallaby player. Come as you like, Bernard Foley sealed the three points to snatch victory. Well, the referee's been labelled a disgrace. Andy, let me throw to you first. Scotland right to feel hard done by? Uh, definitely. It was, at best, a marginal decision. I mean, one of the good things to come out of it was at the final whistle, Joubert sprinted off the pitch straight down the tunnel, and that was the first time in the whole weekend that we'd seen a South African run into space rather than directly into contact. <laughs> so that was a positive to take from it. Clearly very unlucky. The thing for me, I mean, it was a marginal decision. You could see why he gave it. It looked like it had been a knock-on picked up by a player in an offside position. The thing that really annoys me is I don't understand why that is a kickable penalty offence. There's a number of offences in rugby, like you're crossing. Why is the other team got a potential shot at goal when they don't even have the ball? I think there's a number of bizarre things in the rug- rugby laws that, such you know, to lose a game on on what is basically just an instinctive reaction in the middle of mayhem is uh, absurd. Who knows? I mean, it would have been a scrum to Australia. They might well have scored anyway, but it was. Uh, yeah, it was, there were 319 minutes of glorious rugby and then uh, a rather sour end. But it was a, a fantastic match and it, I mean, Scotland were... You know, Australia played pretty well in attack, choked basically. Um, it, I mean, it would have been one of the great chokes. They made so many kind of mental errors. Uh, they lost their rag at the end, saw players throwing the ball at opposition. We saw that board, you know, kind of dubious late tackle... Uh, on Stuart Hogg they really lost it and people often talk about Australia finding a way to win in tight games they basically found a number of ways to lose and got lucky in recent World Cup Scotland have been incredibly blunt in attack you look at their try scoring stats against the major teams in previous World Cups they hardly ever crossed the line and they've been they were fantastic and it was a, a spellbinding game slightly tarnished by the weird rules of rugby and some dubious referees and it- absolute outcry in the hours that followed about why this one didn't go upstairs why was this not put uh, to the TMO Dan I know you've been mulling over the intricacies of this look at uh, spent a subbing shift yesterday most of it looking into the stipulations uh, for the TMO when he can be called and it does seem the only time you can't call the TMO is when it's a technical offence in open play Uh, I believe you can uh, it's in the act of scoring a try you can check up to two phases before if there's a serious foul play, you can check. You can check to see if it's gone between the posts, and but that almost never happens. Uh, it's 
I think Joubert had a poor game. Uh, I don't think that was the the incident at the end was perhaps his worst moment. If he'd gone to the TMO when the uh, rules of the World Cup say that he can't, he'd have been slated for that. It was, as Andy says, a very tight call. You can see why it, lo- it, the, it looked like a knock-on. I thought it was a knock-on at first. It was only when the, they were showing the replays afterwards that you saw Nick Phipps touching the ball. Uh, the other issue you have to consider is that Welsh is only offside if um, if Phipps is try- making an attempt to play the ball. He brings his arm around. I think he did say that he was trying to play the ball, so fair enough. If he's trying to play the ball, then no, uh, it's, not off- it's not offside. So it was technically the uh, the wrong decision, but it was a tight one. I thought the worst decision Joubert made was to yellow card Sean Maitland for the uh, deliberate, or oh, allegedly deliberate knock-on. It was, clearly was that his call or was that the TMO? Well, that was the, the TMO's The, the TMO yeah. drew his attention to it, didn't he? But um, Joubert on the replay decided yellow card and the TMO agreed with mm. him. That was one of those ones where it looks much worse in slow motion than it does at full speed. At full speed, you can tell that's an instinctive reaction. He, sits, he sees the ball, sticks his hand out yeah. to get but it. he was nowhere near catching it, though. I mean, it, it was... No, but he... It, that was, to me, that was... It's an unlike, audacious yeah, attempt, I'd have said I it was think. a penalty, but... No, but it was not an outrageous. It seems bad a terrible decision, shame. Let's bring Owen in here that we're that we're talking about refereeing yeah. decisions. Yeah. It shows you how tight the game was, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm probably more on Dan's side than Andy's when it comes to that Maitland yellow, which I did think was the decision, regardless of what happened at the end. The mental decision that Joubert made while watching the replay to leg it once uh, the full <laughs> final whistle went was a really bad call, personally. I think he had a very very t- tightly fought eBay auction to attend to. There was like Possibly. five seconds left on it. But um, I think, really, with Maitland, at the end of the Australia game for Wales, Cuthbert did what was very similar in the same sort of part of the pitch, and it was very clearly the intent was just disrupt play. It's deliberate. Um, but with that, I sort of felt the other hand was coming out to try and go with it for two hands. I know this is down to interpretation, but this is having watched it X amount of times. The principle behind the last-minute decision, you saw the amount of conversation there was contrasting views between professionals and, and we are saying before Dylan Hartley comes out as voice of reason now what kind of world we're living in when that happens I don't, I don't really understand the, I, it, it, the clarification around this um, obviously needs to be put to bed by World Rugby as it has done but I think for future editions maybe needs to re- have a review you know I mean the Scotland um, have this feeling of injustice I feel like it should be the Maitland thing that they're concentrating on rather than this one but I feel like for going future World Cups there should be something where if the principle is there's points on offer maybe there could be some kind of alteration or reinterpretation of the TMO rule and when you go up but it's, a, it's the problem when you get as soon as you allow technology to be used in one circumstance you then get, are going to get these conversations about why not in that circumstance well, we've yes. seen this in other sports as well it's very difficult and uh, you know I mean I guess it could come to maybe some uh, you know, referral rule like sort of thing in, in American football they have well referees disappear under a magic hood and look at replays yeah which is such an awful way to end a, end a game the thing Scotland can be most annoyed about is that uh, Bernard Foley finally found his nerve because he had a shocking game up yes. to, in the first half. I think he missed the first three conversions. I mean, don't forget, Australia scored five tries to Scotland's three. If Foley was kicking, yeah. well, they'd have been out of sight, but he missed the first three conversions. There was his kick that was charged down for uh, Seymour's that, that, try that as well. Kick. Mm. 
And, and, and that line-out before the moment we're talking about was a contributory factor as well. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because it takes us back to the England-Wales game and they said, don't go short, at least go to the middle or to the back. And then they did the reverse and, and lost out. So, I mean, <laughs> they it brings Jeff up Harling. old stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, huge credit to Scotland, though, for me. I mean, I think I got a kind of a sense that they've been annoyed at the uh, lack of coverage or lack of respect that they've had while others have had tougher routes to get to the knockout stages. I thought they were brilliant. I think... Australia, um, having walked away from Twickenham a couple of Saturdays ago, being really annoyed that Wales hadn't taken advantage of it and then heard that, oh, that was just Australia showing the other side as to why they're going to win the World Cup. I didn't really feel that they were at full concentration yesterday. And then if you're looking at an interception, if you're looking at how long Foley took to make that kick that was charged down by Finn Russell, great offload, great finish. But I think Australia, uh, say to Andy, they were trying to lose almost towards the end when the rain came down. Um, and I think they're going to have a very, very tough match up in the semi-final if they play like that. As we talked last week about the possible after-effects of the group of death and how, what effect having those two massive games would have on Australia and Wales. And I think they both showed signs of it having dulled their edge a little bit. I think Australia missed uh, David Pocock uh, enormously as well. I mean, uh, I don't think that Foley kick was the only one that was charged down. Their half-backs didn't really get the protection from the back row that they've had throughout the tournament. Um, I think Scotland, were prob- of the Six Nations teams we've seen in this World Cup, Scotland have played with the most ambition. They play, they have the best passing game, they play the most attractive rugby. Uh, they're a young side as well, I think. Maybe even next year, definitely the year after, they're going to be challenging for the Six Nations. Yes, it's probably too soon to ask them to take positives because they'll be hurting too much at the <laughs> I moment. I think it's time we'll to ask Australia to take negatives because we only ever hear defeated teams taking positives. It's time that the winning team started taking negatives. And I think there's a lot of negatives for Australia to take away. Yeah, uh, I think game. Finn Russell's a really interesting one for me because... There's no doubt they're a better team when he's in there, but you have to take the rough of the smooth with him. So you'll get the fantastic charge down, great offload off the floor. But um, then you'll also get the time when he didn't take the mark and just threw themselves into trouble in their own 22. So I kind of see some comparisons between him and Bigger a few years ago. And Bigger's kind of arrogance and personality was getting him to as much trouble as it was, you know, good performances. So I'll be really interested to see how they build on Russell's role in the team because there's no doubt he's integral to it well, Russell's only what 22, 23 yeah, I think yeah. and you've, with a coach like Vern Cotter who's uh, got the experience with Clement Severn Clement Severn um, he can kind of drill those slightly more lack- lackadaisical aspects out of his game we're talking about who Australia were, were, were missing um, in that match who caught your eye as someone that they can be really pleased they're moving forward with as it were I thought Kurijani had a really Big game at uh, at centre, and um, he always sort of looks like he should be pretty devastating. Doesn't always. Kudrani was excellent that. in the rugby championship. Yeah. He's not had the best world. He's not kind of shown his top form in the World Cup uh, so far. But I agree, he was kind uh, of he was a wrecking ball uh, yesterday. Yeah, and Hooper being out and coming back in, it's just going to be interesting to see where the Pocock makes the next round because when you've got both of them there and they're defending, on the phase play, one goes in, sorts it out, and then the next one goes in. So it's um, it's a real tag team effort there, so I'll be really interested to see whether they've got both of those in the next starting lineup. I think that'll be pivotal. I think they will. I think McCalman's a really good loose forward, but he doesn't have the same presence at the breakdown as uh, Pocock. I think they probably learnt as well that when you are uh, five points up with a few minutes left don't have your reserve prop standing at fly half inside your own half. That's You'd think they would probably work that out. Michael Sheckers is coaching genius. 
So Australia, of course, got Argentina in the semis and the Pumas defeating Ireland 43-20 in Cardiff. Ireland had won the past five matches with Argentina by a margin of at least 15. But they arrived in Cardiff without Paul O'Connell, Paul O'Mahony, Sean O'Brien and, of course, their inspiration, Johnny Sexton. And after 13 minutes, they were 17 points down a mountain to climb. They, why did they start so slowly? What, did, what went wrong, Owen? Uh, maybe, maybe it could be a number of things, lack of uh, leadership on a big occasion like yesterday. I think I was having a chat to a, a colleague of mine last night and we were saying, would Gatland have swapped the injuries that he had if he could then say, well, instead of that, you could have Warburton, Alan Wynne-Jones and Dan Bigger out? And we probably came to the conclusion that he'd keep it as it is because it's such a hole that was left by the three injuries that went in yesterday. And if you do get off to a shocking start as they did, um, you haven't got those guys in the pack in the in the back line to get everyone together and stop it happening and stop it escalating. Um, I think it's a credit to them that they almost came back to level terms and, and with the guys on the pitch. But uh, I don't know. I think Argentina just really came out of the blocks they're, they're a fantastic team to watch because they play right on the edge of emotion you know and that will be their downfall they'll that will be why they get to the final depending on how it plays out but they just absolutely went for it in a in a millennium stadium that was sort of 70 percent irish it was incredible the atmosphere they probably would never have played in a stadium or an atmosphere like that i would guess i don't know whether they come up with that sort of thing in rugby championship or any kind of atmosphere whether that overwhelmingly against but i was uh, tremendously impressed by their start and i don't think ireland were ready for it no, I think one thing Les Kiss, the Ireland defence coach, is really keen on is only committing two players to the breakdown. And when you've got the likes of O'Connell and Omani and O'Brien on the pitch, they're very, very disciplined players and they, they, they stick rigidly to that. Ireland committed far too many players to the breakdown at first. They were defending too narrowly as a result and Argentina just ran around the side of them and gave them, uh, let the Pumas put far too much width on the ball. And that's why I, and Ireland just realised too late. Clearly, losing those players, and O'Brien in particular, given it was a kind of needless loss, you get injuries in rugby, but to lose a guy for a stupid, pointless That was punch, his own fault. Yeah, then that, that really damaged them. I just think Argentina play such wonderful rugby. They've got so many different options. They've got power in the forwards. Sanchez and Hernandez can put incredible width on the ball. We have Fernandez Lobo playing like Barry John at times. <laughs> Burst Cordero did to set up that first try around... Uh, Carney was just just magic. Were and, they lucky yeah. not to have a player red carded? No, no, I don't think so. I thought it was. Not. I mean, yeah. it looked worse on slow motion. He does go in. It's kind of his head's first, and then he brings his arm around to bind on. But if you look at that at, sport, at full speed, it's a split second between I, the two I, actions. Ireland made, were forced to come out and attack, and they looked really good in that middle forty. And uh, yeah, well, I, it was a it was a wonderful game. I thought it was. I think yeah, sort of rugby at its best. Just I think you're doing it and expansive. So I think we'd be doing a disservice to Argentina as well to blame it on uh, blame Ireland's defeat on those injuries. I don't think they would have won even. Okay, Madigan had a poor game, especially kicking from the tee. But I'm not convinced they would have won even with Sexton and with those three forwards back. Uh, Ireland are a far more limit, far more limited team than um, than Argentina. I, I think I called them the Conor Murray box kicking show because <laughs> the man is a robot and that's all he's able to do it but, seems yeah, I, I mean he's good at it and they have yeah. some excellent chasers but it's really boring to watch and we, we, what we shouldn't do is patronise Argentina by saying oh didn't they do well haven't they so they have improved enormously in the three years they've been in the rugby championship people said before this tournament defence wins the World Cups and it do, it's, that's not necessarily the case Argentina showed that you can win a huge knockout match by playing really attacking rugby. I think the big challenge for Argentina now 
is this is the first time in the World Cup they'll play two big matches back to back. I don't think they've ever won consecutive rugby championship matches off the top of my head. So that's going to be a new yeah. challenge for them. But they seem to be improving so fast and their confidence. So, but what was really impressive was that after Ireland made that fantastic comeback, it forced them to almost ditch that the rather conservative game they played, particularly in that match with Italy. The way Argentina just sort of saw it, it looked at one point they might implode slightly and um, they played some really impressive rugby. Worked their way up the pitch when you thought they could have kicked it and they just trusted their skills and got some fantastic tries. Next season, they're going to have a super rugby franchise. So their players are going to be playing together more. They're going to be playing in a, a competition that rewards attacking rugby more and I think they're going to get better and better. Oh, and Maybe do we, we should think turn they... Saracens into a super rugby franchise. Do we think they'll trouble the Wallabies? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Um, with Patagonia and no home nations, that's pretty much the only team I can get behind now. So um, I think... I think they certainly have the ability to do that. I mean, again, I go back to two Saturdays ago and, and I feel like a lot of the undue credit that Australia got for that defence when really I think it was one-dimensional attacking play from us. So I feel that Argentina do not suffer from that. They can hurt you in all in different ways. They can mix it up. They can go straight down the middle and they can go, as they showed yesterday, uh, uh, width and use width perfectly. So I think they can beat Australia if Australia go in with the same level of concentration that they had yesterday. Um, and I think probably weather may even play, play a factor as well next week. I think we also don't give enough credit to Sanchez's goal kicking. People talk about the goal kicking of the likes of Dan Bigger uh, in this World Cup. Sanchez is as good. I've never seen a fly half who strikes the ball so sweetly from the tee as well. He's a great, he's a really good player. They're such a wonderful team to watch. And I really I think want them to win the whole thing. Just compare I, the, the sort of different. The last World Cup, they were quite conservative. And you compare the difference between the way they've gone and the way you know England have gone. <laughs> you think oh, they, they should be the blueprint? I think for the the Six Nations, and we've seen you know. We've lost to the hemisphere. I love my hemisphere. Any hemisphere that can produce Michelangelo and Michael Atherton is a pretty special hemisphere. But I think that you know they they have closed that gap. We need to. How have they done that? They've done it by ballsy, exciting rugby. Well, we'll be back shortly to discuss the other quarterfinal matches and get Owen's opinions on the Wales exit. This podcast is sponsored by Heineken, proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Get closer to the action at heineken.com/rugby. Now, on Saturday at Twickenham, Wales World Cup dreams were ended in cruel fashion. A very late try from South Africa sealed a 23-19 win. Wales had only once before beaten a Tri-Nation side in the World Cup and their epic battles with England and Australia began to take their toll. Um, Owen, I hate to capitalise on your misery, but um, (laughs) they did look very tired in the last 10 minutes. They did. um, I'm absolutely gutted and I think probably in time I'll look back on this like I should do that it was a fantastic achievement with the resources available but that will probably be three or four years time right now it's just hard to have come out of Twickenham the last couple of weekends knowing that we should have capitalised on our domination especially in both first halves and those both those games were against Australia and South Africa and um, we had basically the scouts joining in the back line so it's really hard to try and justify um, the kind of heroic failure tag yet because you know Gatlin and Edwards won't be pulling that line they're just devastated and yesterday was the same as Australia we were camped in their half George North had chanced straight at the beginning 18 months ago no doubt he would have finished that he's not really been any anything close to 75% this tournament in my view let alone 100% Cuthbert's been out these are two finishers that for Gatland has won him Grand Slams uh, Lions Tour so he wouldn't have legislated coming into the tournament with both those being woefully out of shape for different reasons crucially for me at outside centre is where we've really missed 
either Scott Williams or Jonathan Davis. Jonathan Davis is such an intelligent centre at appreciating space and the way we play with the regularity that we go to Jamie Roberts and how, how often the defence have to go and keep an eye on it. Davis always around the hour mark will notice where the gaps are occurring and make those game-changing, game-winning changes. And if, if it's not him, the amount of times that Scott Williams has come back, like Twickenham 2012 against Ireland, he comes in and he appreciates the space. It's like Solskjaer for Man U. You can just watch it from the sidelines and just know where the opportunities are. So it's really gutting there because I haven't got anyone to blame. And you know, <laughs> find someone. Yeah, yeah. Cuthbert. Let's blame Cuthbert. Cuthbert. He was I mean, at fault for the try, wasn't he? He no, should have called the defence across. Got yeah. sucked in. Cuthbert would be though. nowhere near that team in normal circumstances. He's out of form for whatever reasons it happens. But you, you should be given the chance to play yourself in. He had to play because he had a pulse and he was warm. So he had to, he had to actually be in that side. And and everyone knew. I was at Cardiff for a month ago against Uruguay, and that was his chance to get into form. It was shocking then. At that point, if you had options, if you had Liam Williams, if you had Eli Walker, you'd say, well, just take a breather, come out the team for a couple of times and come in and, and try and get your form back but it was just devastating because the petty and immature side of me wants a sense of injustice and wants to pin it on a referee I mean Wayne Barnes like nature's scapegoat I would love to <laughs> I would love to blame it all on him but I mean begrudgingly well, I think he yeah. had a good game I think he was, you can he blame was fair it on him because if he hadn't missed that forward pass in the quarterfinal eight years ago he might have been given the New Zealand France game Okay, I'll go. And I'll then run with you that. Had yeah. Another referee, you might have, you know. Well, no, because they couldn't have swapped Nigel Owens over, could they? Well, that's just anyone. <laughs> they could have had Craig Joubert. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> then you'd have had your scapegoat. But, but I, I just think that with everything that we had, um, we were fantastic. We just didn't have enough invention, enough creativity on the outside of midfield. Um, so we go, we go away from another World Cup with regrets. The only thing I, I didn't quite agree with that I read was that we um, haven't really progressed since New Zealand 2011. We're South Africa light, uh, one-dimensional power play, but we haven't got the creativity around that. We haven't got the magic touch. I think you could say that if we were at full strength, but without Halfpenny, North Cuthbert at full strength without um, Scott Williams Jonathan Davis I don't think you can really say there's been no progression in the last four years just absolutely devastated It is the nature course of tournament rugby that sides get injuries and, and lose players but you're saying it's it's deeper and, and wider than that No I, and I take that and I th don't think you should legislate going through in a tournament without picking up injuries um, but I think what we found is that we had Anscombe and Tyler Morgan um, in the back line probably about three, four, five caps between them trying to run back line moves and what you ended up seeing was Angstcombe just panicking kicking a couple of times almost giving away a try to Brian Habana at one point so all the you know Qatar and Switzerland training camps everything that's run through where these guys have been on the outskirts um, suddenly we've got James Hook coming on at 60 minutes and a Tyler Morgan James Hook combo three months ago four years ago he would never have planned for that going into this World Cup so that's I think where it hurts hardest but um do you think you should have trusted Hook and maybe Matthew Morgan a bit more? We've got that bit of extra instinctive flair. Yeah, I know. I know. This is the thing with Hook is that we've all seen he can do it, and we all think, well, if he if he can do it, he should do it. He should be there. I don't think he did because Hook let himself down in a couple of warm-up games. He's got 77, 78 caps, Hook, now, unbelievably. And he really hasn't been at full strength since about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And and Gatlin's apart from actually saying it, clearly doesn't trust him. So the only other reason I may have had Hook in there is when South Africa came in those wave after wave after wave of attacks in the second half, 
he's that second kicker that could at least help relieve the pressure. I felt we missed that. We had bigger and we had that as an option, but the South Africans snuffed that out. I felt we needed that second kicker. Sometimes Jonathan Davis with his left foot can really relieve that pressure sometimes. Do you think they maybe should have gone with Priestland at fullbacks? I mean, Priestland was another kicked. ball player. That, I mean, they talked about Priestland and Hook as people that can identify an opportunity. We didn't really look like we had someone that could come in and identify an opportunity, see space that I was talking about right at the beginning. So I do, I do see the arguments for that, but... I wasn't disappointed with the team that you picked. No, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I saw uh, Priestland play for the Scarlets against Northampton a couple of years ago, and he went to pieces. His kicking from hand, just the sight of Ben Foden, who was at the top of his game back then, uh, at fullback, he went to pieces just at the sight of him. Yeah. Kicking straight It was out. a sublime bit of skill. That was brilliant, wasn't it? The, Absolutely. The, I mean, was the turning point in that match. Can you take any positives from this? I'm trying to cheer you up. Here. Uh, <laughs> no, I won't be cheered up. Um, but I, I do recognise it's almost, almost exclusively positive for Wales within the parameters of all that happened. I mean, Dan Bigger this tournament um, has just grown and grown and grown to the point where we were nine three down. I don't think South could even been in our twenty two, and we just gave away nine twelve points cheaply by not just chumming up to Wayne Barnes and just identifying what we needed to do to be on side with him. <laughs> and it, that really frustrated me because that was the second row doing that almost exclusively. That was Charteris and Alwyn Jones with their fantastic tournaments. But I think. Bigger then took it upon himself straight from the kickoff to chase his own kick, drawing three defenders and set up a try. And that's that kind of leadership. Um, he'll be 28, 29 going into uh, uh, Japan. A few of the other players, Warburton, all the other guys are going to be coming to their prime. If I was Gatland now, I'd just say, well, I've won Grand Slams, I've won British Lions, I've won standalone Six Nations. This is all about the World Cup now. We're at a pretty crucial time. Um, Edwards is out of contract. Uh, McBride, Howley are out of contract next summer. I feel like he should just be bold and just say, this is the next four years we're going to plan for the World Cup. He's earned the right to do that in a way that I don't think Lancaster did. I feel like he's done that. He's won enough. He's done um, everything that he needs to just say, the only thing left for me now is the World Cup and that's what we're going to concentrate towards. Dan, what did we make of, of South Africa's performance? It, it was uh, an outstanding defensive performance. Um, Schaltberger, uh, I think, made 26 tackles. It was kind of Dussotois-esque. Um, as well as Wales back row played, uh, Warburton was fantastic. I thought South Africa had the edge there, especially at the breakdown. They got on the right side of Wayne Barnes, as Owen says. Uh, Vermeulen, he was nominated for World Player of the Year last year, I think it was. Uh, he very nearly didn't make this tournament. He got an injury during the Rugby Championship, I believe. And he was back to his best. Um, they were just too strong for Wales, I think. They do have a similar game. Uh, I know you said Wales aren't South Africa-like, but they are similar in their approach. I just don't think Wales, especially with all their injuries, had the power to, to stop uh, those South African ball carriers. I mean, Etzbeth was. I, I read that Etzbeth has custom-made seventy-five kilogram dumbbells. <laughs> That's the same weight as me. That's <laughs> astonishing. It would be the most extraordinary story if they went from that humiliation in the first pool match to end up going all the way. But of course, yes. they've got New Zealand. I don't know the part. most extraordinary of all time. No, in not any of all time. format, this, of, of, it would be know, an, extraordinary, an story. extraordinary story. But I mean, and they did. You know, they were missing, as we talked about before, key men in that in that opening game, particularly Vermeulen, Fruit Dupree, uh, P and I had a poor game in that. Um, they looked kind of they looked blunt and unimaginative, at, but you feel they've got flair waiting to come out. But maybe you know the, their ten, twelve, thirteen. You think in another couple of years could be absolutely yeah. un-South Africanly fantastic. Um, 
But it, it, I thought was, both teams were a mixture of really impressive and uh, limited. I thought South Africa's win was the only victory for defensive rugby of the weekend. Yeah. But it was great that that game was won by a, a really good try. Um, and we've seen you know, Argentina won their game with brilliant attacking play. That, that was what tarnished the Australia-Scotland game. It was won with a dodgy penalty. Mm. But it was, uh, it was one of those games that either side could have won. Wales will, as you say, have regrets that they were really close despite... Um, missing so much of their backline, their pack, which was basically unaffected by injury, was really impressive through the tournament. Let's talk about New Zealand then thrashing France 62-13 on Saturday. Very embarrassing for the French. Le Monde has called it Black Saturday. Uh, 62 <laughs> points, the most they've ever conceded in a test match. And the 49-point deficit is their heaviest defeat for New Zealand. A nine-try spectacular. No team had ever before scored more than 50 points in the knockout stages. They were, at times, just sublime, weren't they? Yeah, that was... I mean, I got off the A309 and that was pretty much the only consolation that I got back just in time to watch that happen. <laughs> and I thought, well, in seven days' time, if we're not facing that, it's not the worst disaster in the world. <laughs> they, were, they were fantastic. They, um, you, you saw Richie McCaw afterwards saying about they talked a lot about taking it up a notch in terms of intensity. Um, really put the French to the sword. The handling from 1 to 15 is frightening sometimes and this is I don't want to bring it back to Wales but a couple of times Whitelock found himself in 3v2 situations in the same way Charteris did but he didn't have the naivety just to go into contact with that and he thought he drew in the defender and create the overlap and I think that was just Scudder's first one where he just danced in from the from the touchline it was just brilliant Those offloads were just uh, astonishing from New Zealand we talked about uh, how good Vermeulens was to Dupree for South Africa but that, that kind of thing was commonplace in the New Zealand match I mean I think it was their about their 8th or ninth try the second one for uh, Kerbalo the replacement scrum half the offload to him from Joe Moody who was about the 5th choice <laughs> Kiwi prop was just ridiculous we talk about you know Stuart Lancaster wanting a second distributor at inside centre <laughs> and then sort of going back on that at the crucial stage well, New Zealand pretty much had 15 fly halves on the pitch it seems at times so it was amazing that well, that's it I think France could easily have won that game if they'd done everything differently on and off the pitch for the last 10 or 15 years. That could have made a massive difference. <laughs> that profound. I mean, Julian Surveyor, Joan Lomu like but nothing like the physical stature of Joan Lomu, but he seemed to be as much of a sort of tank well, going he's, through. He's six foot four and about... You know, 16, 17 stone. He's not a small man. I thought that second try of his where he ran through three French tackles, it reminded me, a lot of people were saying it was similar to Lomu in 95 uh, against England. It was similar to Lomu in 99 against France, actually, when he scored the try that I think put the All Blacks 24-10 up then. Uh, and this one put uh, the All Blacks 25-13 up. So it was definitely on. That was a really good omen for France when uh, when that happened. Yeah, they seem to have cleverly constructed a massive deficit to inspirationally come back from, but they just missed phase two out of that that strategy. So they've got the most wounds to lick, really, of all the quarterfinalists, the French. It was it was humiliation. Can for you them. lick wounds if you're medically dead? I don't know. It's well, not a wound. It's kind of in the, it's that scene in Game of Thrones where the guy gets his head exploded, it's, <laughs> isn't it? I don't think you can but, or want yeah. to lick that. And when it was. People say, oh, no one could have lived with the All Blacks in that form. And that's kind of true, but at the same time, they were allowed to get into that form by France not being very good. Yeah, uh, I think also... Pick and the- and Fafana. Fafana had some magical moments, but... Any, uh, any was- chance you think that the All Blacks are going to get stage fright? I don't know if they get stage fright. I think they I could know. still lose, though. I think yeah. they could still lose. I think... I, I mean, don't think we'll probably will, talk but... about predictions, but I, th- I think um, 
depending on the weather and depending on what actually happens, I think South Africa could draw them into a type of game that they really don't want to play. Yeah. Um, a lot a lot said about the All Blacks being able to mix it up and, and be physical but also play brilliant rugby. I feel that there was a little bit of flat track bullying going on in the second half when they started doing, you know, pops yeah. doing offloads. <laughs> it's great to watch but there was a little bit of the high-fiving, bum-slapping, this yeah. is great, aren't we? Great attitude. I and it, you know, when, I mean, especially when Dan Carter just decided the TMO issue is easily handled by just taking the kick before they even go up for the replay. I thought <laughs> <laughs> it was just uh, typical of their attitude at that stage of the game. But it was, I felt the most interesting thing was if you look at Vermeulen's quotes afterwards, he, after the Welsh game, he was saying, oh, we really needed that and that kind of sinister, we really needed that kick up the arse. And, and then uh, Steve Hansen was saying, we have to improve. Now, if you look at both sets of games, you wouldn't expect those quotes to be that way around. Yeah. But it's interesting. I don't know whether the New Zealand coaching staff will be looking at this in the same ecstatic way as you know the rugby public are yeah. at the moment. And it was no, I th- wonderful to watch, just as a rugby. I, mean, that was, I think, one of the great weekends of... Of rugby, probably there's, I mean, there's ever been, and it was, and we've similar to the last day of the Six Nations this year. I think this has been a real watershed year for the for the sport. I think the problem France had was that New Zealand played with such intensity and at such a uh, high tempo in the opening. 20, 30 minutes of that match France were just shattered, they were run off their feet, they were strewn all over the place they'd been taken apart and they just they, they didn't give up in the second half they were still trying but they were dazed they yeah. they were just running into contact, they had no no idea what to do, they were trying to make bursts and it was not on for them. So we, we've got our, our semi-final lineup, and as we've been saying it's all Southern Hemisphere so we have to ask the question really why why the gap what's what's going wrong with Northern Hemisphere rugby or is it not my my theory is that a lot of it comes down to the weather um this isn't a crackpot theory I promise um (laughs) I think uh, you look at the rugby championship and super rugby and it's played largely in decent weather in good weather it's played on hard pitches and that's conducive to fast running rugby. You know, handling errors are something that uh, they're less likely to happen in the, that dry weather. You look at uh, Northern Hemisphere domestic rugby in England, especially, uh, and in the Six Nations, it's played in uh, freezing conditions. I, you know, I think we've all been to club games on a wet December, wet Friday night or something, and not really enjoyed ourselves um it, it's not conducive to that same kind of rugby same goes for the six nations when you're playing that kind of rugby uh it, you struggle to live with, with the pace and the intensity but we're not we're not going to change the timing of, of northern hemisphere rugby to be a summer sport so what else do we do to you close, see i, to close I, I think gap? we should that i've i've said for a long time rugby should be a summer sport it's don't, more don't enjoyable it's only football in the winter <laughs> I, well, think, I think cricket should be a winter sport as well. <laughs> it should put, there, there's possibly a couple of ways of looking at it. I, with Welsh traditions of rugby, I don't think you know running rugby and skills through the hands and running through the back is something that's alien to us. It's alien to us in the Gatland area, but before that's the foundation of Welsh rugby through the 60s and 70s. I think there's got to be a bit more cohesion. If you look at um, New Zealand Rugby Union, how they get access and control to everything from grassroots all the way through to the super franchises, it's one message that goes all the way through now. I mean, I, we've had our issues with Premiership Rugby in the past, but certainly in Wales, there's been massive bitter disputes in the background up until last year when this it was peace in our time agreement was sorted out, money issues were put aside and suddenly they said, oh, maybe we could try all working together and see how that goes. And I feel that if you're trying to implement skills programmes, development, 
balance and, and a bit more um, fluidity in, in the running back line rather than just being pace and power, this Brains v Braun um, matchup that it's talking about be- between Southern and uh, Northern Hemisphere. That's the way you do it when you get a little bit of cohesion between the unions, the clubs, the regions in, in Wales's case. Uh, I saw Martin w- Williams saying that he you know, puts most of Wales' success down to Steve Hansen, who you know lost 10 in a row when he was there. But the things that he put in when he came in, he said suddenly tra- um, training changed completely. And they were just passing to each other up and down the pitch over and over. He said it was boring, but after a while, these kind of things become instinctive to you rather than just going and lifting weights. Well, Steve Hansen also pointing out the number of foreign players increasing year on year. Well, you just need to recruit more. You know, if only England had recruited Dwayne Vermeulen, well, they had the chance, could have tempted him over here. Um, maybe the way that kids are taught maybe in you know, New Zealand in particular, I guess it's just that those handling basics are ingrained from from an early age. Uh, I think with, it needs a bit of courage in coaching and, and tactics. I think you know, it's, we've seen British teams play, as you say, like, you know, the old sort of Welsh style, play with that ambition. Um, in some ways, you could say the gap isn't that good. Scotland, you know, almost beat Australia, Ireland. You know, close after an hour, despite losing a lot of players. Wales were pretty close. I mean, England, if only they'd scored three more converted tries against Australia. <laughs> um, you know, if that game had just gone on for another five or six hours, that could easily have happened. Then um, uh, I just hope that this, this World Cup has shown, we look back again to that last day of the Six Nations, unlock that positivity then maybe that gap will close. But yeah, I, as I much as we improve, they're going to keep on improving as well. I don't know. I think um, one, one other issue is you notice that the Northern Hemisphere teams who do play the more attritional rugby are the ones that are suffering the most injuries. Um, you know, Argentina and Australia and New Zealand, they've had a couple of injuries, but nothing like Wales and Ireland have had. I'm not convinced that the Northern Hemisphere v Southern Hemisphere debate is entirely that quick. Because you I hope to go that's... down the pan in a different direction. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> true. Well, France... Sorry, Japan the... beats Samoa. Go north. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think you look at the way Scotland play and you look at the way England or Ireland or Wales play, they're nothing alike. They're completely different styles of play. Similarly, look at the difference between South Africa and Australia. Again, nothing alike. I think that the difference between Northern Hemisphere rugby and uh, Southern Hemisphere rugby, yeah, there's a general difference, but it's not that clear-cut, I don't think. They're just better at it. Yeah, they're just better. Uh, The Southern Hemisphere teams are just better at playing rugby. That's my analysis. Well, that's all for this episode of our Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. Many thanks to our panel, Andy Saltzman, Dan Lucas and Owen Evans. We'll be back next week to discuss the semi-final matches and to preview the final. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or keep up with us at acast.com slash rugbyworldcup. Make sure you check out all The Guardian's previews and coverage of the tournament at theguardian.com slash sport. I'm Sandy Moore. Our producer is Peter Sale. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Heineken, proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Get closer to the action at heineken.com slash rugby.